Uh, if you want to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 9, <clears throat> again, we are in a massive uh, section here in the scriptures. I'll get to that in a little bit. Romans chapter 9. Uh, one of the shows that our family uh, watches, or one of the Netflix shows that our, our family watches from time to time, we'll even binge quite a few in a row, is the Great British Baking Show. I had no idea there were so many fans. I mentioned it first service, and there was this loud celebrative moment. I didn't know. And uh, I, it's a little dangerous to watch, right? Because you feel like you better put something in the oven if you're watching it, because you're going to get the munchies for sure. One of the things I love about the show is the vocabulary, the language, the phrases, the words that they have, many British words that we don't really have or we don't really use. Uh, so a few of these uh, come to mind here for me. The first is, it's a bit of a mess, right? Someone works for hours on their magnum opus and they bring this lovely thing out and put it before the judges only to hear, it's a bit of a mess. Or it's underproved, right? Underproved. You're like, what is this? Of course, this is referring to the rise, if you don't know. Or there's a nice bake on that sponge. And you think sponge? Oh, they mean cake. And you think about it and you go, yeah, I guess cake and a sponge, they look a little bit alike. One of my favorites, I have incorporated this a little bit into my verbiage, is it's a bit fiddly, right? For some, <laughs> some little fussy little bit of something or other, it's a bit fiddly. And then there, of course, are a number of comments and humor about, and you probably know where I'm going here, the fear of the soggy bottom, right? Fear of a soggy bottom. There's another British phrase that we, we have in our vocabulary, but we don't use it very often, and that is the word sovereign. Uh, again, we, we have it, we don't use it, and here's why, as Americans... We despise sovereignty. If you think about it nationally, you think about our government, we've opted for a democratic form of government, or a republic, if you will. So we have elected officials, three equal branches of government, two houses of Congress, a veto and an override, a president for only four years and only two terms, and we've ensured that we have an armed citizenship just so the government doesn't get cocky, right? And on top of that, if you go to court and the judge issues a ruling, there may be a judgment, but you can still appeal. So what I mean to say is, in our nation, in our culture, we despise anything that smacks of sovereignty. In our efforts to make sure that there is no abuse of power or tyranny, we've actually made it very difficult to get almost anything done. And I'm not knocking our government. I like what Winston Churchill has said. Democracy is the worst form of government, except for all the others, right? What I'm trying to show here is just how loath we are culturally to the concept of sovereignty. That anyone would have absolute freedom and unchecked power makes our American skin crawl, right? And uh, this, I think this mistrust of authority and this aversion to um, sovereignty is something we need to be aware of in ourselves as we come to our text here. It is a bias that we have because today what we are looking at is the sovereignty of God in relationship to the salvation of mankind. 
So we're heading into the deep waters here of Romans. Chapters 9 through 11 really are one unit and ideally could be preached all in one whack, but that would be about a four-hour sermon, and you wouldn't want to hear it, and I couldn't do it, so we're going to break it up into three. Um, But what I would encourage you to do is to, throughout this week and the next few weeks, look at chapters 9 through 11, read them all together in one sitting. It'll just take you about five, ten minutes. But read it many times over, just in one sitting, 9 through 11. One of the best ways you can improve as a Bible reader is to read larger passages of Scripture in one sitting. And this will help you kind of keep an eye on not to lose the forest for the trees in Paul's argument here. Um, So we're coming off of chapter 8, just to give you a little bit of a contextual run-up here. Chapter 8, we talked about the beginning, uh, what it means to be spiritual. That uh, God has given us, those who have repented in him and trusted in Jesus, God has given us his spirit and he acts upon us and we are to live into this spirit and not into uh, the nature of the flesh. In the second half of the chapter, Paul talked about the assurance that we have of God's unconditional love, of our security in the family of God, and our certainty of the inheritance to come. We who are sons of God have an inheritance to come because he holds us. And then in this next chapter that we're looking at today, in chapter 9, we see Paul address the concern for Israel, his own countrymen. And he does so that Gentile believers in particular would have a right perspective on the Jewish community as well as God's big picture plan in redemptive history. And so in chapter 9, it seems like Paul is essentially answering a Gentile's question. How does Israel factor into all of this? In other words, we know that those who are reconciled to God are reconciled to him by virtue of repentance and faith in Christ as their sacrificial savior. But um, as you might look around, largely the nation of Israel, at the time of this writing, largely the nation of Israel has rejected Jesus as God's Messiah. And so it leaves this question of, well, what exactly then is their status here? And then it goes on, there's sort of a secondary question that might be, uh, also follow, which is this. If God promised that Israel would be his people, and yet the majority of them do not believe in Christ as God's Messiah, does that mean God's promise was wrong or that his word has somehow failed? So this, this section, this chapter in particular, has some massive questions, right? What about Israel? Where are they in God's redemptive program? Should we question God's promises based on Israel's seemingly anemic response to Jesus? Who really are God's chosen people and on what basis? Has the church replaced Israel? Does God love all people equally? And if God only chooses some for salvation, is that fair? So just a few small questions this morning, right? Just a few. The bullet right at the front that I hope you hear this morning is this, that God is sovereign over salvation And he has graciously chosen to save some sinners. And that is what I hope you take away from this passage this morning. Chapter 9, verse 1. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ 
for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. I want to start with this. Given our day and age, given the fact that there is a war in Israel presently, given the sensitivities right now to any hint of anti-Semitism, I want to give a few uh, caveats here. First of all, uh, Paul's, this passage contains some of Paul's critique of his own Jewish brethren at the moment of his writing here. Okay? They're Paul's critique. Let's start with that. Uh, secondly, this is the first of three chapters in a large, or three parts even, of a larger argument. And it begins with some critical assessment of where Israel is in relationship to the Lord because of their rejection of Messiah. It concludes with some really optimistic comments in chapter 11, and we'll leave that for another day. Where this message is hard uh, for Jews who have rejected Christ as God's Messiah It is equally hard for Gentiles who have rejected Jesus as God's Messiah. So it's an equal opportunity offender, if you will. And then finally, Paul shares some hard words here about Israel's condition. But he does so with great sensitivity, with grief, and with genuine sorrow for where they are at at this present time. And that in and of itself, I think, ought to be instructive for you and for me in terms of how we ought to feel about anyone who has not come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. It really ought to break our hearts. It ought to animate our active and compelling witness to them. Um, In fact, so grieved is Paul about those who don't know Jesus as their Savior. He says, I wish that I would go to hell so that they would not. I'll tell you, I had a man come up to me after the first service with tears in his eyes, grieved over someone who he loves who is not yet a believer. And he says, you know, what do I do with this grief? And I told him, I said, I wouldn't change it a bit. I think it is a godly response. And I wish that we all had it. This was convicting for me personally. I, I genuinely love Christians and believers. I love you all. You're my church family. And I genuinely love people who are not yet in Christ, but I don't know that my heart rightly breaks or is rightly grieved for those who are not yet in Christ. So to begin with here, Paul, um, he wants to sort of show the favor and the goodness and the privilege that God has given to Israel, God's chosen people here. Now, we're going to do a little bit of patriarchal history in case you don't have a background in the Old Testament. I want to catch us all up here. First of all, we have Abraham, the father of our faith, right? Then we have his son, the child of promise, Isaac, who came late in his and Sarah's life. And then through Isaac, we have a set of twins. Between Isaac and Rebekah, they have two twins. We have Esau and Jacob. Esau, if you'll remember, he, we might as well call him the Alaskan in the Old Testament, right? He's the outdoorsman. He's the hunter. He's the hairy guy. You know, you know you're, you're heading to Alaska at the airport in Seattle when you realize that there's more facial hair than not and everybody waiting for the flight, right? Esau is the Alaskan, so to speak. Then we have Jacob. 
And Jacob is the younger, uh, and he is the mama's boy. He's the book guy. He's the endorsement. He's the Californian in the text. And I can say that I'm both. I'm both of these things, so I can say this, right? And Jacob, who is chosen by God, is later renamed after their little bit of a wrestling match here, and God calls him Israel. And so from Jacob or Israel, we have the line of Israel and the Jewish people. Okay, so just to give you some background there. I also want you to remember who Paul's audience is. Paul is writing in the first century to the church in Rome, and it's predominantly a Gentile faith community. There have been some Jewish believers in the area, but they were highly persecuted in Rome. In fact, the emperor, we learned this in Acts, if you remember Acts 18, if you want to look at it, 1 through 4, the emperor Claudius issued an edict to expel all of the Jews from Rome. And so they were heavily persecuted. Paul actually runs into a pair of these Jews, Priscilla and Aquila, in the city of Corinth. They become friends. They work together. And it's likely from this encounter that they learn what's going on in Rome. And so Paul writes from Corinth to the city of Rome about the issues that he had discovered. So that's the, that's the sort of the church community. It's primarily a Gentile community And it seems that Paul is addressing this Gentile uh, congregation, so to speak, in Rome, cautioning them about their swagger. Like you look around and you see a bunch of Gentile believers and you see very few Messianic Jews and you might think, look at us, we got it, we're kind of big time. And Paul has a way of saying, no, let's step back and look at the big picture of God's redemptive plan here. He privileged and favored Israel. Even though it doesn't look like it now, that's the way it was. And oh, by the way, pretty bright future for them to come as well. In fact, in chapter 11, Paul will make the statement, all Israel will be saved. So what does that mean? And the answer to that is, you'll have to come back on week three to hear what that really means. So Paul is showing all of these beautiful benefits that Israel had, and I'm just going to work through them quickly here. Adoption to sonship, which means more than just that they're in the family of God, but remember, as we've talked about, sonship means something in particular. Sonship is a reference to an inheritance, right? He also says the divine glory, recipients of the divine glory. When God brought Israel out of bondage from Egypt, The glory of God traveled with them in the wilderness. They saw the Shekinah glory of God. And the covenants, promises made to Abraham, Moses, and David of God's faithful connection to them with, again, a bit of a future hope in it. And then the law. The law was an incredible gift. It was meant to be a lens for them to see themselves and the Lord. I brought my reading glasses in to try to illustrate this. I have these on my desk, and they say, where are me? And I never do. Do I look smarter with these on? I can't see you all, though. It makes me dizzy. I can see this really well. But but the law was meant to be a set of lenses through which Israel looked and viewed and saw themselves as sinners and saw their need for God uh, to provide a Savior because of his holiness. But instead of seeing through the law, they looked at the law. And they worshipped the artifact instead of the message it was intended to give them, if you will. 
Then they're given the temple, right? Temple worship. They see there's a way for sinners to be made right with God. Sin must be atoned for. This gives them a hint of, oh, we need a sacrificial savior, the Lamb of God. They're given promises, numerous promises throughout the Old Testament. The patriarchs, many of which foreshadowed Christ in an aspect of their their nature. Even Isaac, who was going to be sacrificed on the altar, right, is a type and a picture of uh, the sacrifice to come. And then we have their ancestry. The line of Messiah comes through them, making it easier for them to receive Messiah when he arrives. That's incredible blessing. Can you see that? All of that privilege that has been given, that is wonderful. So Paul's kind of like, hey, Gentile, you got some pride and some swagger. You think you're a big deal. Hey, sit down. Look how God has favored Israel here. Um, And that sort of brings up a natural question where Paul kind of has to address their present status. In other words, if God promised that Israel would be his people, and yet in Paul's time in Rome, the majority have rejected Christ, does that mean that God's promise was wrong, or that his power has failed, or that his word has failed? That's a reasonable question. Paul picks it up in verse 6. It is not as though God's word has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac. In fact, if you're the kind that underlines in your Bible or circles or marks, uh, notate that word through. That should be read with emphasis. It's through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. So Paul makes a big statement here. Not all Israel is Israel. What does this mean? And so Paul introduces this idea that there's really two concepts of Israel here, two two different usages. One, there's a spiritual sense, and another, there's a national or ethnic sense. And at this present moment here in Rome, not all who are ethnic Israel are spiritual Israel. Again, it would be very easy for this Roman Gentile Christian to look around and see only a small remnant of believing Jews and to conclude that God's promises had failed. And what Paul is trying to show them is that the promise, God's promise of salvation, right, through Isaac, through Jacob, is to more than just the physical descendants or the ethnic descendants. So the children promised to Abraham include more than ethnic descendants. And for this, I want to go back to the Old Testament, to Genesis, if you will, Genesis 12. Um, Genesis 12, starting at verse 1, we're going to look at the call of Abraham and then the Abrahamic covenant. This is the promise that um, Paul is referring to here. Genesis 12, 1. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. 
So here we see this promise that it's not just to Abraham, not just to his descendants, but through them to bless all the nations and to bless all the peoples on earth. And then turn to chapter 15, a few more pages over. We see the formal covenant given to Abram. Remember, Abram gets a little bit impatient. Hey, I don't even have a son. How's this going to happen? Abram 15, verse 1. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no children, so my servant and my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son who is of your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said, so shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. And so the point here is to look up and to see the expanse of all of these people, all of these descendants to show that it's not simply through an ethnic line, or not simply an ethnic line, but through them a blessing to all people, including the Gentiles. In fact, in the first century, predominantly spiritual Israel was Gentile. This is why Paul says at the beginning of Romans, right? For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of salvation for all who believe, first for the Jew and then to the Gentile. The gospel goes out through them here. And so it's not as though God's word has failed, but in fact that it was too narrowly understood. And that's what Paul is correcting here. So if spiritual Israel is broader than the ethnic lines of just Jacob, what, on what basis does one become a child of God? That's sort of the next question that Paul picks up here. And the answer is this. The children of promise, or those who become a child of God, are so by God's sovereign choice. Now, um, let's look at this verse 10, and we'll come back to some of the difficulties here. Not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born, or had done anything, good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. How does that phrase sit with you? Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated? A couple of weeks ago, I preached to you that God loves everyone unconditionally, absolutely, and perfectly. So was I wrong or is Paul wrong? Is there a way to reconcile these two? And I do think there's a way to reconcile this. Paul's quotation here is using an Old Testament Hebrew idiom. Uh, so it's a phrase that can be a little bit misleading. In Hebrew, the concept between love and hate, hate is not simply one of just emotion or affection. They don't compartmentalize it like that. Uh, love and hate would be more integrated with the actions corresponding to them not just an affection or an emotion. So to say, Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated doesn't mean that God has withheld affection from Esau. It simply refers to his favor, his choice, his preference, his deference to Jacob. 
Uh, and you might remember Jesus used this same kind of uh, construction in his preaching in the New Testament. In, in Luke 14, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. So does Jesus, who teaches us to love others, is he telling us to hate them with affection? No, he, he's saying in, it's in term of priority. By contrast, if you don't prioritize me over them, you're not truly following me. And so the idiom is a bit misleading here, but this is, this is the point, this is the takeaway. God has chosen and favored Jacob or Israel in spite of the fact that he was the younger. That was a reversal of custom. In spite of the fact that he's a bit of a mama's boy, right? In spite of the fact that he got his brother's birthright by treachery. In spite of the fact that he lied to and deceived his father on his father's deathbed to receive his blessing. Jacob is not God's choice of blessing because of virtue or good deeds or effort or anything in him. He is God's choice. Why? Purely because of God's sovereign will. It's what he chose to do. Jacob is, in fact, one of the more annoying and objectable characters in all of the Old Testament, all of the scriptures, really. We, we see his trickery and his treachery and his conniving, and we think he doesn't deserve to be chosen of God. And that's the point. That's the point. It offends our sort of do-good, get-good moralism as though God had to choose based upon what we bring to the table. But Jacob actually serves as a foil to our sense of moralism and merit. Jacob teaches us both the goodness of God's grace, but also the scandal of God's grace. Grace is not given for merit. As soon as it is viewed that way, it is no longer grace. And I think the point that we are meant to take away here is this. We are, all of us who are in Christ, we are all of us Jacobs. Chosen by God, not for anything good in us. Uh, St. Augustine said it this way, God does not choose us because we believe, but rather that we may believe. Uh, Douglas Moo is a New Testament scholar, and he had a great summary on this as well. He said, any basis for election outside of God himself runs counter to both the language and the logic of what Paul has written. So Paul is showing us here God's sovereign choice of Jacob and not Esau. And that principle of sovereign choice is extrapolated by Paul to us. It is the same way that he chooses us, not by anything in us. And I think the takeaway here is this. Make no mistake, if you are in the family of God, it is not because of you. It is not because of anything good in you. It is because of God alone. It is because he has chosen you to be among the elect. It is because he has chosen you purely by grace, not because of anything good or favorable. Now, to many of us, we will sit here and hear that and we will go, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's not fair. That's not fair. And to that I would say, 
Praise God that he does not deal with us on a matter of fairness. Praise God for that. Verse 14, what shall we say then? Is God unjust? Not at all, exclamation point in my Bible. (laughs) For he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And here's the gist of it. God is not obligated to save any. God is not obligated to save any. So our next point is this. God's sovereignty to to choose to save some sinners does not undermine his justice because he's not on the hook to save any. And here's the thing. I think when we come up to this issue of justice or fairness and we get uneasy about that, I think what it reveals is that we we make an error in at least one of two categories. Uh, On the one hand, we fail to see our starting point that is of a truly sinful condition. We think we start at neutral and God ought to save us. When in reality, we're all enemies of God and the fact that he chooses to save any is grace. So we may choose, we may have a, a faulty perspective of our sinful condition. The second, the second mistake I think we make is this. We have a faulty perspective on his sovereignty. God is completely free to do what he will. He's not obligated to do any of this for any of us. A.W. Tozer has said it this way. His sovereignty requires that he be absolutely free, which means simply that he must be free to do whatever he wills, to do anywhere, at any time, to carry out his eternal purpose in every single detail without interference. Were he less than free, he must be less than sovereign. So the simple matter of fact that God chooses to save any is grace. It's purely an act of mercy. And the sovereign God of the universe has the right to be merciful as he chooses. Now, this used to be a very difficult bit of theology for me. And I don't mean to say that, oh, now it's easy. I got it. Okay. It's still hard. But there is an author by the name of Jerry Bridges in his book, Trusting God, who had a line uh, that really helped make it clear for me. He said this, everything this side of hell is grace. Everything this side of hell is grace. And then you realize how blessed and fortunate we who are in Christ really are. So we move to our third and final point here. God has sovereignly chosen to save some sinners. Verse 16. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, well, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? Now, I'm not a potter. Um, I'm, a, I'm a wannabe athlete, a basketball player, so I'm going to change illustrations here, okay? Um, I, I play basketball a couple times a week, or at least try to, with a pickup game downtown. And I'll just say this. The guys that show up at pickup basketball who maybe didn't play organized ball are bad referees, Okay? Most fans in the stadium, bad referees. There is this particular um, 
move that you are taught is fundamental basketball. I'm not going to demonstrate it athletically for you right now, but basically it's called a jump stop and a step through, okay? If you are, you got the ball, you're heading to the hoop, and you come to a jump stop two feet at the same time, the goodness of doing this is now I can, I can choose which pivot foot I want. This can be my pivot foot or the other way around. So a good basketball player will come to a jump stop. When the defender comes up, you'll pump fake as they get straight up. Now you can step around my first step, and now I still have one more, my second step jumping into a layup. You do this at a pickup basketball game, and almost all the guys will go, oh, it's traveling, it's traveling, because they're bad referees, right? It's a fundamental and excellent footwork move. And I, that's what comes to mind when I look at what Paul is sort of getting at here. God's not accountable to us. We're bad referees. Who are we to bark back at God about how this ought to be, right? We are not good. We are not wise. We are not holy. We are not just. I mean, it's not like we just lack an attribute of God. We don't have any of the attributes of God absolutely as he does. So for us to bark back at God, a creature, a marred creature by the fall, still distorted, still deformed, to say, this doesn't sound right, God. We're bad referees, not just lumps of clay here. So Christian, here's uh, how I think this should impact our hearts. Christians, check your ego at the door. You are not in Christ because of your wisdom or your merit. You are not a Christian because of your intelligence or your personal effort, or because you were bright enough to figure it out. If you are in Christ, it is because of God's sovereign choice by mercy and grace that he, repent, that he granted you repentance unto life. That ought to humble us. So check your ego at the door here. Again, particularly in the time of Paul's writing, I think the Gentiles were walking around with a bit of swagger, Paul's saying, hey, don't get too cocky. And it seems to me that there are really two temptations uh, for Christians, Gentile Christians in particular. The first is this, pride, look at me. I got this sorted. The other is outrage. It's not fair. Why does God only save some? And I think rather the right response we ought to have is this, if God has chosen to pardon you from sin, rejoice. Rejoice. Verse 22. What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us whom he has called not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles? This is fascinating uh, here to me, I think really important, that Paul seems content to leave a lot of the why, a lot of the mechanics uh, in the background here and not to speak dogmatically about them. In fact, I will say throughout Scripture, the questions of why rarely, if ever, get answered. If you think about Job who comes to God, hey, hey God, why all the suffering? I'm a good guy. Can you tell me why? I'm paraphrasing. And God says, Brace yourself like a man. I'm about to tell you and not answer your question. Essentially, you don't even understand the mechanics of the universe. 
the physical mechanics. How could you presume to understand the spiritual mechanics behind all of it? I also think of sort of my television set and the difference between how something works and operates. I know how to operate my TV. The remote, I know what buttons do what. Most of the time, my kids would object a little bit just now, but I know how to operate my TV. I don't, I don't really know how it all works in the mechanics of it. And Paul is sort of content to leave a lot of this in the realm of mystery as to why God would do things this way. He essentially says, what if? And what if this? And I think that is a good example for us to follow. There are things about God we will not fully understand. In fact, there's a great Latin phrase. We haven't had any Latin yet, so here you go. Finitum non capax infinitum. The finite cannot comprehend the infinite. Or as Augustine has said, if you understand him, it is certainly not him that you have understood. Okay. Finally, we're going to close with this, and I'll read these last passages. This is fiction, or this is not fiction, but this is fulfillment of prophecy. This is what God said he would do. This is how he said it would unfold. Verse 25. As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people. I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called children of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of Israelites be like the sand on the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah said previously, Unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. So the closing point I want you to hear is this. God is sovereign over salvation. And he has graciously chosen to save some. And if you are among the redeemed, rejoice. And I would add, may that animate you to be an active witness for the gospel of Jesus Christ because you don't know whom God might save through your witness. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we are here humbled at this text. We, all of us, all of us have questions about what is here. It seems even Paul. But we who are in Christ recognize with humility that it is by your grace and your mercy that you have reached down to save us a sinner. So we do not boast in ourselves, but in Jesus and in his cross. We pray, Lord, that we would be faithful witnesses of this gospel because we don't know whom you have chosen. May they see Jesus in us and know his gospel through us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.